Paul writing here to the Ephesians, explaining to them how their salvation is by God's grace alone, what God had done to save them out of darkness. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is good news for us. And that is a reminder of the grace that we need, of the sin that we once were in, the darkness that we once were in, and so God came and rescued us. Next we have a prayer for illumination uh, before we go to God's word for the message. And we will go to the Lord together. We read this corporately out loud together. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen and amen. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. The title of the message this morning is Met by God on the Lonely Dark Journey. We're going to be continuing to look at the life of Jacob. But I want to start off with a question for all of us to consider. Take a moment to, to think about this. Where and how in your life has God met you? And maybe when too. Where, how, when has God met you in your own life? I think we all, if we took longer, you know, we could probably come up with a lot of different ways that God has met with us, how God has revealed himself to us. This week for me, as I was going through this passage, there was a lot of self-reflection, thinking about this question, how I've been met by God in my life. As I studied this passage, there's probably more kind of self-reflection on this question than maybe I've had recently with some of the other texts in Genesis. So this feels kind of maybe a little more raw this week. It really, I feel like this hit me a lot more, hit home 
a lot more. And if you're, if you're just joining with us, if you're, you're visiting with us and you haven't been around, we've been in Genesis. We, we started back up in the book of Genesis uh, at the beginning of September. And we've started and picked back up from where we left off in the spring. And we were in Genesis 23 and kind of making our way through here. And now we're here at chapter 28. But we've been looking a lot at the family drama that has occurred in Abraham's son Isaac and him finding a wife, Rebecca, and then they have these children, Jacob and Esau, and there's just been a lot going on, a lot of drama, and that drama is going to continue to play out for the next uh, several weeks, the next several chapters. But one of the things we've been trying to do is we've been trying to say, how can we identify with these characters, right? How can we identify with these people that God called to himself, instead of just pointing the finger and saying, well, that was stupid and that was bad and we're still going to do that but turning and letting God's word act as a mirror to our own lives and our own hearts right saying I'm just like Jacob or I'm just like Esau and I do these ridiculous things. I think for me when I think about the life of Jacob, Jacob isn't somebody that I necessarily related to before. I think all of us probably relate differently to different characters in the Bible Jacob was just never someone that I was like, oh yeah, I'm just like Jacob. Uh, We know about Jacob, right? He was a schemer and a deceiver. And I grew up being a rule keeper, right? I'm, I'm the guy on the sports field that like, no cheating, right? Like everybody needs to play by the rules. Everything needs to be fair. No trying to get some advantage over anybody else. Like I'm the rule keeper. And not that I haven't schemed and, and cheated in different ways, but just I never related to, to that part of Jacob's character until this week. <laughs> um, and I think it just realizing more this week how I need the Lord just as much as Jacob did. How I needed the Lord when I was lost in my sin and how I still need the Lord every day. And I want to argue that you and I, same kind of stuff I've been arguing in Genesis, but you and I left to ourselves, we will choose to walk on a long, lonely, and dark journey, ignoring God and trying to find our own way. If we're left to ourselves, we're going to walk that long, lonely, and dark journey by ourselves, ignoring God and trying to find our own way in this world. Let's go to the text, Genesis 28. Let's see what happens here with Jacob and Esau and how God meets Jacob. Genesis 28, starting in verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. 
and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you, I will give a full tenth to you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, again, we ask that you would meet us on our journey, that you would show yourself to us, that you would speak your word this morning to your people. God, that we would see you for who you are, that we would know that you are in this place and that you are with us as you have promised to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're taking notes, I have some headings, and they're all kind of related to the last, uh, last week's headings that all ended with the word blessing. And so we begin here with passing on the blessing. And this is in chapter 28, verses 1 through 5, passing on the blessing. Isaac here blesses Jacob, and he sends him away. Now we need to have a little context of what happened last week. You remember that Jacob and Rebekah schemed to get the blessing from Isaac for Jacob instead of for Esau. Rebekah went, went and made a meal while Isaac or Esau was out hunting, and Rebekah made the meal and had Jacob bring it in to Isaac. He put on Esau's clothes, and he brought it in, and he stole the blessing. Jacob gets blessed. Esau receives what is the anti-blessing, and then Esau is rightfully frustrated, right? but he's so angry that he wants to kill Jacob. And Rebekah overhears Esau saying that he's planning to kill Jacob. So she says, you need to go away. We need to send you away. And Isaac probably doesn't know 
that occurred. Uh, he probably didn't overhear that conversation. So Rebecca is, is scheming to save Jacob's life, says she's going to send him away. Now that's what, where we come to here. Isaac is sending Jacob away with the blessing. And this is interesting if you remember back in chapter 24 that Abraham sent his servant to go back to Paddan Aram, to the house of um, Bethuel, and to find a wife for Isaac. And in that, in chapter 24, we saw that Abraham's servant went with this whole entourage, right? He went with all these elaborate gifts, and he went on this journey that was probably pretty safe because they had a lot of people around. They had all these things. They could probably, you know, protect themselves and, and pay for things that they needed. But there is a serious contrast here with Jacob's journey compared to the journey of Abraham's servant and his whole entourage. Jacob is alone. And there's no record that he even, even had any, not even one other servant with him. I'm guessing he may have been riding some animal. It was a long, very long journey. But Jacob is alone. Isaac sends him, as we see in this language here in verses 3 and 4, he sends him with the covenant blessing and the reminder of God's promises. God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful, and multiply you. We've seen that language, right? We've seen it in the beginning of Genesis. We've seen it with Noah. We've seen it with Abraham. There's this, and when we get into the book of Exodus, the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied in the land. So there's this idea of, of the covenant blessing of, of having children and being fruitful, being a company of peoples. And these promises, so these promises of offspring and land are promises that have been repeated so far throughout Genesis. It's consistent with the former promises that God had already made. But again, it looks bleak for Jacob, right? How am I going to be blessed? How am I going to have all these offspring? How am I going to have this land? I've just been kicked out. I've just been exiled. And I'm, I'm literally running for my life. How is God going to come through? And we probably ask these same questions in our life, don't we? How is God going to come through in my life? How is God going to fulfill his promises that he has made to me? When I'm going through hard times, when things aren't lining up the way that, you know, I've been, I've been maneuvering, I've been doing all these things just like Jacob to make everything work and things aren't lining up. How is God going to come through? Before we kind of answer that question and, and look at what happens with Jacob, there's kind of this interesting transition paragraph here about Esau. And in the next few verses here, verses 6 through 9, we're going to look at Esau missing the blessing again. Missing the blessing again. And again, there's a contrast here. Esau, he received the anti-blessing in chapter 27. And there's this contrast between Jacob and Esau. Jacob is, is sent with a blessing from his parents to go find a wife. And he, Esau overhears, right, that what was said to Jacob, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, which interestingly, we saw at the end of chapter 26, Esau has already married foreign women. <laughs> so he's already disobeyed his parents. But he's seeing here, okay, they tell Jacob, don't marry a wife from the Canaanite women. So Esau says, okay, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to go to Ishmael, 
my father's brother, and I'm going to marry one of his daughters. This is not what God intended. Esau is still being foolish here, and he's trying to get back into his parents' good graces, saying, I screwed up, and here's what they said to Jacob. If I just go do that, then maybe things will be okay. Maybe I can work my mojo and and get back in their good graces. But it doesn't work that way. Esau is foolish. He does things his own way. But Jacob, too, is still foolish. Jacob obeyed his parents by going to do what they told him to do and go on this journey. But it's not trusting God. It's fearing other people. It's still trying to please his parents. This is not obedience of faith. This is still Jacob being Jacob. And we can relate to this, right? It's easy to do the right thing for the wrong reason, right? Children, kids, right? It's easy to obey your parents because I'm going to make them happy or because I'm going to maybe get some privileges, right? It's easy to say, okay, I'll do my chores, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, but really in my heart of hearts, it's not to honor the Lord, it's just to please my parents or to get what I want, right? I'm sure you kids can relate to to feeling that way. Adults, right? Christians, we were there once, right? (laughs) And sometimes we're still there in our hearts, aren't we? It's easy to, to obey God, right? To check check off all the boxes. Well, I went to church this week. I did my Bible reading, right? I prayed for my family. Check, check, check. When our hearts are checked out, right? We can go through the motions. We can do all those things, and our hearts can be checked out. Well, the good news is that God in his grace still meets us on our journey, still meets us in our wandering, right? We're prone to wander, but God meets us in our wandering. Let's see now how he met Jacob on his journey. Verses 10 to 17, grace is the blessing. Grace is the blessing. This is not a pretty sight here for Jacob. He's alone. It's dark, right? Night has fallen. He's exposed. It's not a a time in history where you wanted to be out in the wilderness by yourself, right? You didn't want to be alone without some big entourage, without some weapons, without protection. Jacob is alone and he's exposed. He uses a stone for a pillow, right? This is not a comforting scene. We saw these words in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, right? We were dead in our sins, we were in darkness, but God. And we see here, but God. God comes to Jacob in a dream. And he has this dream of this ladder coming down from heaven. Most commentators think it's more like a stairway than a ladder. He sees these stairs basically coming down. And it says that the top of it reached to the heavens. We've 
seen this before in Genesis, haven't we? Right? Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. Do you remember this? What happened there? They were building a tower. They were building a stairway to heaven to do what? To make a name for themselves, right? Jacob was the same way. He was trying to make a name for himself. But God comes down. And what a picture of grace this is. Grace, unmerited favor, getting something that you do not deserve. And that's what God does here for Jacob. Remember Jacob's name, right? He's the heel grabber. He's the deceiver. He stole the birthright and he stole the blessing from his brother Esau. And he has spent his whole life living out that identity. And now he's alone and he's confronted by the Lord in this dream. He sees this dream, the stairway comes down, there's angels going up and down on the stairway and he sees the Lord standing at the top of this stairway. And God in his grace speaks to Jacob. Jacob, you dirty scoundrel, I finally got you alone and you're scared. I'm going to show you who's boss. No, that's not what he says, even though he could have, right? What does he say? Look at verse 13 through 15. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God reiterates his covenant promises. Land and offspring and blessing and presence. The same things he promised to Abraham and to Isaac. He says, I am with you. How badly did Jacob need to hear those words that night, right? He's alone and he's afraid. And God comes and says, Jacob, despite everything you've done, despite your past, despite who you continue to be at times, I am with you and I will not leave you. What's crazy is this is the first encounter that Jacob has had with God in his whole life, right? We know that he's at least 40 years old. And we probably think to ourselves, couldn't God have saved a lot of trouble, a lot of pain in this family, if he would have just came to Jacob in his teen years maybe and given him this dream? You know, like 16, right? Like, you're probably wise enough at 16 if God shows up in a dream, you're probably going to get your act together, right? Like, couldn't God have done it at 16? Why did he have to wait till he was 40? I'm almost there, so... Why did Jacob have to learn the hard way? Why do we have to learn the hard way? I think about this, and again, just wrestling through this this week. I think about all the pain that I caused my parents, 
crashing my mom's motorcycle when I was driving it when I shouldn't have been. And a lot of stories I can't even say from up here. But just being a fool, being an idiot, dishonoring my parents, causing them pain, causing pain to a lot of other people too. Couldn't God have just reached down earlier before I was 19 when he, he reached down to me? You know, Maybe I would have listened at 16, right? And not went through all the, the stuff I went through. Believe me, three years, wow, it was, it was crazy. But couldn't God have done that? Well, I think the answer for Jacob and the answer for us is in verse 16. Jacob wakes up from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. God was always there in Jacob's life, wasn't he? I mean, God didn't go anywhere. God wasn't hiding from Jacob. He was always with Jacob. God made promises to Jacob in the womb about who he would become. So we can't just say, well, he made those promises and then was silent for 40 years. There's no excuse, right? We talk about God revealing himself, kind of big you know, theological categories, general revelation, right, is Romans chapter 1, God reveals himself in nature. There's no excuse. No human being can walk outside and see a starry sky at night and say, eh, whatever, right? God has revealed himself in nature, in creation. Now we would say we can't fully know everything about God from that, but we know that he's, he is, right? That he exists, that he's the creator. We need special revelation, right? We need the revelation from scripture. We need the revelation of Jesus Christ, of his life and his death and his resurrection. Because apart from that, we can't truly know God. Many of us grew up in the church, right? We grew up hearing the message of Christianity, but it was just maybe words on a page or just something that our parents believed in. Why was the Lord in that place and we didn't know it? Why did we sit in church our whole lives, some of us, and it just didn't click? It didn't mean anything. Grace, right? True, saving, irresistible grace. God coming to us when he decided to come to us and opening our eyes and showing us his goodness so that we stood in awe of him and just said, there's nothing I can say, right? God, you are good. You have opened my eyes. You have rescued me. It's not something I can scheme for. It's not something I can buy. It's not something I can earn. It's not something I can work hard for. It's not something I can manipulate God for. It's sheer grace and unmerited favor. When I, as a 19-year-old foolish freshman college student, had the gospel explained to me clearly for the first time, God came near. He convicted me of my sin 
He showed me my brokenness and my need for Christ. I was met by God on the lonely, dark journey of my life. And it was all his grace. But that day, that, that instance, that was just the beginning of the journey. As we look at Jacob's story, I think there's a lot of questions about Jacob's response. I think we can easily get hung up. Well, was this, was this Jacob's true conversion here at this moment? Did he really fully surrender his life to the Lord? Or was this just the beginning? And I don't want us to get hung up here, uh, kind of trying to figure that out. I think most of our stories, I know a lot of our testimonies aren't this like dramatic event like I had. Most of us, a lot of us, it's, it's a long journey, right? It's not all neatly divided. It's not like I was a horrible person. You know, I was a drug dealer when I was 15 and I was like doing all this stuff and then just all of a sudden like God saved me and then I became a saint overnight. Just like Jacob, we are on a journey and we're gonna see over the next several weeks how Jacob's journey continues to unfold. If you wanna kind of read ahead and, and you know, cheat a little bit. <laughs> Chapter 35, Jacob actually comes back to this same place, and there's some pretty amazing things that happen in his, his encounter with God. So I would encourage you, uh, you can read ahead and look at that if you want. But I think the, the last few verses here of this chapter should give us great comfort. This is an interesting section here. Commentators are divided over this and this idea of this vow that Jacob takes before the Lord. And this is what I've been wrestling a lot with this week, just trying to figure out how to interpret this, uh, what my view of it is, and I'm not saying this is the only view. And and a lot of it, um, I think, is just related to my own story and how I kind of relate to this. I'm not saying we can just interpret the Bible however we want, but commentators are uh, kind of divided on this a little bit. Basically, there's, there's kind of three main ideas about this vow that Jacob takes. Uh, some people want to say, uh, you know, the Lord came to Jacob and he was soundly converted. And this is, Jacob's vow here is a, is a vow of faith and of trust in the Lord. Uh, kind of the opposite extreme of that would be that um, you know, this is bad. Jacob should not have taken this vow. Jacob is still uh, being Jacob to the core and he's, he's trying to manipulate God. And the third view, which I think was Luther's view, is um, kind of in between, like, Jacob probably, you know, maybe the vow is okay, but, like, Jacob is still being Jacob, and so I'm probably in between the second and the third one. I don't, and it's probably the minority position, but I don't think this vow was a good thing. I don't think this was Jacob walking by faith and really trusting the Lord. So let's let's look into this vow a little bit here in, in verses 18 to 22. This section I call the, the if-thening, the blessing. The if-thening, the blessing. And you can spell that however you want to. So James Montgomery Boyce, uh, who's written a fabulous commentary on, on Genesis, he talks about four shortcomings in Jacob's vow. And this is in, in verses 20 and 22. The first one is that the focus is on Jacob rather than the Lord. Right? If you look at God's promises, God saying, I will, I will, I will, I will be with you, all these things I will do. 
Look at Jacob's language in verse 20. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. So it's all about Jacob, right? It's all about him getting his needs met. And then there's doubt. The second thing, there's doubt of God. Just this if-then language shows that he doesn't fully trust in the Lord yet. Third thing is that he's bargaining with God. This is not an act of faith. He's putting God to the test, right? And Jacob is pretty good at this kind of thing, right? So we're seeing, I think we're seeing Jacob still being Jacob here. And then his, his promises are so puny, aren't they? If God will, all these things, right? Then, he says, then the Lord shall be my God. Then this stone that I set up will be the house of God. Then I will give you a full tenth of everything I have. Right? Newsflash, Jacob. God doesn't need any of those things, right? God is already your God, as he has told you and promised over and over and over. He doesn't need you to build him a house, right? He doesn't need a tenth of your puny little inheritance, right? God does not need those things. And this isn't how grace works. I think that's the problem here with Jacob's vow. This is not how grace works. Our hearts are so prone to think and to act like Jacob. Just share a little bit more of my, my story. I know I've shared some of my testimony. I don't think I've ever shared this story. Uh, my freshman year, I was going through some very difficult uh, times. I, had, I was facing a very difficult situation. And again, if you would have asked me, are you a Christian? I would have said, like, I believe God exists, right? Like, I would even probably have said, like, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I didn't like, think it really mattered at all to my life. I was just kind of like, whatever. Like, I didn't go to church my whole freshman year of college because I was like, freedom, I can do whatever I want. I was just totally living for myself, totally living in sin. And I was facing a, a very difficult situation. And <laughs> I came home uh, to my dorm that night, and there was a little, um, a little invitation to the, the White Hall. Lindsay and I lived in, in White Hall our freshman year. Uh, we met after all of this, but um, there was an invitation to the White Hall Bible study, and it had a picture of a person with like, a, like a, a heart coming out of their chest or something. It said like, "Need a little Jesus in your heart?" Question mark. And I'm like, like I'm in the middle of this like crazy thing that I'm like, I'm like, well, yeah, I do, I guess. Like I don't really get what that means, but I put that thing above my ceiling in my in my dorm bunk bed and I just I started praying and I just was like God if you get me out of this situation that I'm in I will I'll become a better person right like I'll start you know and I I gave away some of my um extracurricular activity type things that I that I had you can figure out what that means but I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna clean up my act right um and I did well I did end up getting out of the situation and then um, I was like, oh, yeah, freedom, like, I'm, everything's good, and I 
went right back into living the way that I was living. I made this ridiculous vow that I couldn't keep, that was totally self-centered. I was just looking for God to come and rescue me from a mess that I'd gotten myself into. And that was a foolish and selfish vow. It took, wasn't that long, praise God, but it took six more weeks until that night when someone came and shared the gospel with me. And, and in those six weeks, I had went from bad to worse. <laughs> I had really went off the deep end and was just destroying my life. And when my friend came and shared the gospel with me, and I just knew, like, I really needed Jesus. And, like, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, I made that vow before, and now I need to just go back and keep that. It was like God blew up everything. Like, God convicted me of my sin, and I just knew that, like, my life wasn't going to be the same. And it wasn't because I was going to work really hard to try to make things right. So for me, that vow that I made, it was, it was meaningless, right? It was weak. It was self-centered. And it was kind of an if, I was trying to if-then God. But we don't need to do that, right? We can trust in God. We can trust in his promises. We can trust that he is faithful, that he is good. And we see this promise here to Jacob, and we see these things like land and offspring and blessings in the way that he received them, and we're, you know, it kind of feels distant to us, right? Like, I'm not going to inherit this big land. I'm not part of this like family that's famous and, and has all this power, right? But as we've been talking about, all of these things, all of these promises, land and offspring, blessings, God presence, God's presence, these are all fulfilled for us in Christ, right? We've been looking at Hebrews chapter 11 and how Abraham and his, his descendants, they were looking forward to a, a better country, right? It wasn't really about the land of Canaan. It wasn't about this physical plot of land. They were looking forward to a city, right? to God's city that he has prepared. And then offspring. We looked at Romans 9 a couple weeks ago. It's not the physical descendants of Abraham. It's the spiritual children of Abraham. And if you're in Christ, you are a spiritual child of Abraham. You are a recipient of these promises. And blessing. Obviously, we have so many blessings in Christ. God's presence is with us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. God dwells in us. So all of these promises have been fulfilled in our lives if we are in Christ. And they are all by grace. Well, there's another interesting way that this story points us to Jesus. In John chapter 1, the very end of the chapter, John 1, Jesus is calling the disciples to himself John 1, beginning in verse 43, Jesus finds Philip, and he comes to Philip, and he says, follow me. And Philip goes and tells Nathanael and says, this is really important as we think about the Old Testament pointing us to Christ. Philip says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. Then Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him, and he says, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Interesting word, thinking about Jacob, right? 
Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe me? You will see greater things than these. And then verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that is a direct reference back here to this passage. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. I'm sorry, Led Zeppelin. I love your song. I still love your music. But Jesus is the stairway to heaven. And if you don't understand that, you can ask your parents. Jesus came down. He died. He went down again into the earth. And he rose again from the dead. And he ascended to heaven. And he's coming down again, right? To take us to be with him forever. This picture of Jesus ascending and descending and ascending, that's what it's about. That's what this pointed forward to. God's grace in Christ coming to rescue us. Jesus is the access to the Father. He is the only way. The stairway, the bridge, whatever analogy you want to use, Jesus is the only way to bridge that gap. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you, you cannot get to God on your own. All of your effort, all of your attempts to build your own stairway, it doesn't work. It can't work. Grace is the only answer. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, it's because Jesus knew you. He saw you. And he came to you like he did to Nathaniel. Grace is your only answer to live the Christian life. It started with grace and it has to continue with grace. Brothers and sisters, let us follow the one who came down and met us on our lonely dark journey. Who shined the light of his grace on us and his truth on us. Let us walk that journey. Let us follow him. Let's pray. God, we do stand in awe of you, of your amazing grace. We remind ourselves of it. We sing of it. We read of it. God, may it penetrate deep into our hearts. May our lives be changed by your grace. May we continue on this journey by grace and grace alone, looking to you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing Amazing Grace, number nine.